Before Christmas, when we began studying this letter from James, I said, if I was to summarise the drive of this letter in one word, I'd use the word non-passivity. And then I had to explain what that word means, because nobody uses that word, do they? Some Christians have a very passive faith. That is, God has done everything for me. I don't have to do anything. Christianity, more or less, gets done to me. Whereas James is saying, that sort of faith, a passive faith, is a misunderstanding of the Christian faith. It's a misunderstanding of Christ. That kind of faith is dead, it's barren, and it'll do you no good at all on the day of judgment. Because the Christian life is actually a very active life of living and loving and serving and giving and trusting and enduring. It's a faith of commitment which holds fast. It's a praying faith. It's a merciful faith. It's a doing faith. It is a non-passive faith. And you've, you've been seeing this, haven't you? As we've been working our way through James, a number of people have come up to me and they said, I'm just really loving this series on James. It's, it's just such a practical book. And it is, isn't it? Who can go home at the end of a sermon, end of a message, and after reading what James has to say about how we act and behave in our lives without going, well, I actually need to change some things in my life. It's so practical. And today we come to the pinnacle of James's message of non-passivity when he makes the very blunt and yet very cutting statement. Strange, isn't it? It can be blunt and cutting at the same time. Faith without works is dead. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about mercy. God has been merciful to us. We must be merciful to others. And now James is showing us how mercy isn't just a thing that we do in our minds. Mercy is something that we do. Like if your brother or sister in Christ has nothing to eat and they've got no way to keep themselves warm on a freezing winter's night, you know, if we were to just then say to them, oh, well, good, I'll be off now. You keep yourself warm and, and uh, hope that you keep that belly full and... Head off without helping them out, head off without giving them a feed or giving them a blanket to keep themselves warm. Well, what good is that? It's no good at all, is it? It's useless. Actually, it's worse than useless. It's just downright cruel. That's not mercy. Mercy is when we do something about it. Mercy isn't mercy until it is actioned. And faith is the same. Faith isn't faith until it's actioned. And James today asks us a question about our faith. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? I want to be very clear about the question that James is forcing us to consider. And I say this because many people, well, their theology just won't even let them consider this question. They downplay this question. They pretend that it's not asking what it really is asking. And so I've got to be really clear about what this question is. It's a question about salvation itself. 
He is asking it in the context of judgment. Am I saved from judgment? In verse 12, the verse just before we come to this passage, he's talking about judgment and how we speak and how we act. We should be speaking and acting as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, right? We studied that the last two weeks. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's a question about salvation itself. Now, we know that we're saved by faith, right? I hope. Am I seeing a few nodding heads? Am I, I'm not seeing any of these, am I? I hope not. I hope by now that we're very clear on this. We are saved by faith. I cannot save myself by doing good things. You cannot save yourself. I can't save you. And you can't save me. No church leader can save us. No pope can save us. No celebrity Christian can save us. No ritual can save us. No other so-called gods can save us. The only way to be saved is to trust in Jesus. We have to believe in Jesus. We have to rely on Jesus. We have to come to the end of ourselves and know there's nothing I can do about this myself. I just have to trust myself to the mercy of God. That's what faith is. Now, if you don't know this, if you're just afraid to shake your head, um, and so you don't actually know this, uh, you and I need to get together and we need to talk about faith and hopefully get you saved. Um, But we know that we're saved by faith. And now James is forcing us to consider the question, can that faith save me? Now, what kind of faith is he talking about? He's talking about a very specific type of faith here, he says. It is a faith, a belief, that is not accompanied by works. Right? So if I believe in Jesus, and even if I, even if I rely on Jesus for my salvation, but I don't have the acts, if I don't have the actions of a disciple of Jesus... If my actions are not merciful, even after I've received the mercy of God. Um, If I don't live out a holy life, even after I've received the holiness from God. If my actions are not righteous, even after I've received righteousness from God. If I don't act as a forgiven sinner, and instead I act all self-righteous. Am I saved? Or am I lost? Now, that's a pretty important question, isn't it? It's a question about salvation itself. It's not a question about rewards that I may or may not get. It's a question about salvation. Am I saved from hell? On judgment day, when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, am I going to be a sheep or am I going to be a goat? Is he going to say to me, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. 
Right? What's he saying to these people? He's saying to these people, come into the kingdom of God. You're being rewarded because your faith has been demonstrated by your actions. That's what he's saying, isn't he? Or is he going to say, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels? For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they'll say, but, but Lord, Lord, when did we see you like this? When did we not do that for you? And he'll say, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you didn't do it for me. It's a question about salvation itself. And as I prepared for this message today, it very quickly became obvious to me that to be true to the scriptures, I'm going to tread on a few precious theological toes. Because many people will answer yes to James's question. They'll say, yeah, of course. If I believe, and that's all it takes, if I just believe, that faith will save me. They'll say, it depends entirely on what I believe, and it's got absolutely nothing to do with what I do. Whereas James very clearly says, no. Belief by itself won't save me. And that's very much in line with what Jesus taught too. You see... We don't even have to think about the answer to this question because James answers it for us. He answers it seven times, no less, in 13 verses, over and over and over again. He answers the question. Firstly, verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Well, well, it's no good, is it? You all said that before. And James says, just like that, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, it's dead. It's useless. In verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. Right? Demons aren't saved, are they? They're the most wicked, evil, vile creatures. And when Jesus returns, they're going to be cast into the fiery pit of hell. And they know this. They believe in God. They quiver in their boots. They know all about him. And they quiver in their boots because they know of the doom that awaits them. And a lot of people would say, yeah, yeah, I I believe in God. And they think that because they believe in God that they're going to get to heaven. He says, well, it's not going to work for the demons. You think it's going to work for you? Thirdly, in verse 20, he becomes quite scathing. You want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Right? It's foolish to believe otherwise. And so he then gives us a couple of examples. Abraham. Abraham was justified by works. 
when he offered his son Isaac Isaac on the altar. You see, Abraham could have said, yes, Lord, I believe in you, Lord. And I believe that if I were to take my son Isaac to that mountain that you're going to show me, and if I were to put him on that altar, yes, Lord, I believe you. I believe you would save him. And so I'm saying here right now, Lord, I believe in my heart. And I offer Isaac to you in my heart. Would that have been faith? It was the fact that Abraham went and did it. That his faith was real. He got to the point where he's about to plunge the knife into the only son that he loved. And God says, stop. Now I know, Abraham. Now I know that you don't hold anything above me. And then he gives the example of Rahab, the prostitute who helped the spies escape out of Jericho. And she was saved because she feared God. You know, when the king of Jericho said to her, oh, you give up those spies, I know they're with you. You know, if she had just caved in at that stage and given up the spies, that wouldn't have been faith and she wouldn't have been saved. And again, in verse 24, James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And again in verse 26, he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So the question he's forcing us to grapple with, this question about salvation itself, he answers it seven times. And he even gives us some examples and he tells us that it's foolish to believe otherwise. So how do you answer that question? If someone says he can have faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? How do you answer that question? Coming from a Protestant tradition, I'm going to be quite blunt for a moment. Amongst us Protestants there is sometimes an ugly arrogance and, strangely enough, a legalism over grace against works. Um, because, this, because of this ugly judgmental arrogance over something which is supposed to be so beautiful and so wonderful and merciful and loving... Sometimes we're even afraid to talk about doing good work. Sometimes we're afraid to even consider the place of works in the scheme of salvation. I get together with some of my minister friends and I'm afraid to even mention the place of works when it comes to salvation. Why is that? Why can James so very clearly say faith without works is not a faith that will save you? And the teachings of Jesus say exactly the same thing. And yet many of my minister's friends would string me up as a heretic and accuse me of preaching legalism if I was ever to suggest that our actions have any kind of bearing on salvation. There's a major discrepancy here. Can you see that? Where does this discrepancy come from? How does this mismesh come about? 
I believe it's very important for us to understand because if we don't grasp it, if we don't get the gravity of the situation, the fact that our salvation depends on whether our faith is active or not, the fact that our salvation depends on our faith coming alive in the good deeds that we do, if we don't get this, well, it has led to the ugly side of evangelicalism, the, the easy believism of a church that, that makes it all about what we believe and neglects the place of good deeds that accompany a living faith. And we can end up being a church who believe in Jesus, but the way we live is no different to how people of the world would live. And I don't know about you, but I know when I read the Gospels, it just glares at me the one thing that Jesus hates more than anything else is hypocrisy. This thing where we say we believe such and such, but we don't live it out. And to get to the bottom of this, to understand it, I'm going to give you both a brief history lesson and a bit of a Bible study. So first of all, a little bit of history. In 1517, Martin Luther wrote 95 Theses on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. Justin, with your Lutheran background, have you learned all about this stuff? Yep, right up. And he nailed it to the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, challenging anyone to debate him, and thus began the Reformation. Three slogans of the Reformation in Latin were sola fide, sola gratia, and sola scriptura. By faith alone, by grace alone, scripture alone. And these slogans were to address a raft of problems within the Catholic Church of the day. At the time of the Reformation, there were some gross distortions of the faith happening within the Roman Catholic Church. And sometime after the Protestant Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church had their own Reformation to sort some of these issues out. And so the Catholic Church of today is not the same as the Catholic Church of the Reformation. But what were these problems? Well, there were lots of issues, but the main presenting issue that brought it all to a head was a selling of indulgences. The St. Peter's Basilica in Rome was falling in dis into disrepair and they needed to do it up. And so they had a bit of a fundraising campaign. And one of the ways that they raised funds for it was you could buy a certificate from the Pope granting the forgiveness of sins or a reduction in the penalty of sin. You could even pay a bit more money to the church and so you could get great Granny Gertrude out of purgatory and into heaven. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Now, I'm not sure, I read that and I'm not sure if that was like a sales slogan or whether it was a derogatory thing. Um, but within the church, at its very highest levels, there was a gross distortion of faith. It was terrible. Gross corruption, gross deception, and a terrible, terrible abuse of power. And Martin Luther, who earnestly studied the Bible, realized the error of what was going on, and so began the Reformation. And these were the slogans. By faith alone, by grace alone, scripture alone. So the scriptures alone were returned to their place as the source of authority. 
It had become the Pope, but not any longer. They were going back to their Bibles. And, of course, when Luther read the Scriptures, it was very obvious. You can't buy salvation. The church were trying to sell something that Christ has given us for free. It is by the grace of God alone that we are saved. And it is by faith alone that we're saved. It's not by what we do that we're saved. And so the statement by faith alone has become one of the pillars of the Reformed Church. It is one of our core beliefs. It's one of my core beliefs. And I hope it's one of your core beliefs. How do we reconcile this though? with what James says, that faith alone will not save us. We hold it as a core belief, don't we? Do you? I hope you do. Well, these two statements were addressing two different issues. Martin Luther was arguing against a different way to be saved, an additional way. You pay some dollars and you're good to go. But for James, the issue wasn't about the primacy of faith. That's a given. It's the type of faith. What is the gospel you believe? How do you believe? You know, the gospel that I read about in the scriptures is one that challenges us to a changed life. It's one where I repent of my entire life. I repent of it. I, I want to be rid of my old ways. Jesus, give me a new life. It is to be born again. As one commentator put it, works are not an added extra to faith any more than breath is an added extra to a living body. The so-called faith which fails to produce charitable works, is simply not a saving faith. Now, it would be wrong to say that Luther's response was only a reaction to a corrupt church. His study of the scriptures could only leave him with this one conclusion, we are saved by faith alone. And this is the message that we must be preaching out in the world today in which we live. The greatest misunderstanding of the gospel is that you become a Christian by doing good things. You ask Joe Blow off the street, how do you become a Christian? And he'll most probably tell you by being a good person. You don't. None of us can be that good. You become a Christian by repenting and turning to Christ in faith. That there would be no need for this thing that we call grace, this thing that we sing about, this thing which we value so highly, this thing that we praise God for having, this thing called grace. There would be no need for that. There would be no need for the cross if, if we didn't have to be saved by faith. And so we are saved by Jesus' work on the cross. We are saved by faith in him. But some people, because of that pillar of Protestantism by faith alone, they begin to nail down their whole theology, everything that they believe about God on that one point. And they find themselves that in the scriptures, things that they believe are contradictions to what James is saying. In Romans chapter 3, verse 28, Paul says, For we hold 
that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And they just miss those three words. But those three words show us the difference between what Paul is talking about and what James is talking about. Works versus works of law. There's two different things. When Paul is talking about the works of law, he's talking about the whole Jewish religious law, from circumcision to sacrifice to the cleanliness laws to the Sabbath laws, this whole religious legal system that we read about in the Old Testament. And he is saying to this church in Rome, you don't need all of, these, all of this religious legal system because that's not what saves us. We're saved by faith alone. You see... When Paul wrote that, this was at the point in the church's development where it was moving from a Jewish religious sect, right? So it was, this Christianity had sprung up within Judaism. Jesus was a Jew. All of his first disciples were, were Jews. But it was moving from this and there was a new thing happening. The Gentiles, the non-Christians were becoming to become, were becoming Christians. The church had begun from this Jewish sect, but now the Gentiles were becoming Christians too. And some of the the Jewish religious heavyweights were saying, right, well, you Gentiles, if you want to be Christians, you've got to become a Jew first because it's all about being a Jew. You have to keep all of the works of the law. And Paul was very adamantly saying, no way, Jose. You don't have to keep the works of the law. Jesus has satisfied the requirements of the law and we're saved by faith alone. But that doesn't mean that Paul ever envisaged that the Christian faith would be an actionless faith. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, verse 13, he says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers who are of the law who are justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Right? Paul is talking about that time when the Holy Spirit begins to bring out the good deeds in us. The Holy Spirit is bringing out the good deeds that the law used to demand. And when we have a real living faith in Jesus, his ways become our ways. You see, we're talking about two different types of works. The work involved in keeping the religious law, well, we're free from that. Christ has done all of that work for us. Is anybody glad about that? I am. Because otherwise worship today had sort of resemble a little bit like a slaughterhouse floor. We'd have a couple of bullocks here to kill and maybe a couple of sheep and a few doves and, and we'd do all of this stuff and we'd be burning it on the altar and, and we don't do that. Why don't we do that? The Bible talks about it. Why don't we do that? It's because we've been set free from this religious law in Christ. Christ has become our once and for all sacrifice and it's not by keeping those works of the law that we're saved. It's because Christ... Has done it for us. Christ is our once and for all sacrifice. But a Christian life 
is a transformed life. Followers of Christ, true believers of Jesus, well, our faith will be expressed in our actions, our good deeds, our love for one another, our mercy, our care and compassion, our obedience to our Saviour. And so it appears to me that probably the most crucial thing for us to understand today is what the gospel actually is. We can believe lots of things about Jesus, but if we don't understand the gospel, we haven't been saved. If your faith is a faith that doesn't demand the repentance of your old life and being born again into Christ, if it doesn't include actions, you've misunderstood the gospel. And are you actually saved? The way of the kingdom of God is so completely contrary to the way of the world. It is so different. Jesus described that to enter it, we have to be born again. It is to become so convicted by the gospel that that I am so sorrowful for who I am and what I've done. And I I just want to be set free from that old life that I was. And and I want to take on this new spirit-filled, this new spirit-led life. It is to become so enraptured by the gospel that we begin to express it in every part of our lives. It's not a matter of putting together a set of rules or, or a list of good deeds. I've got to, got to help X number of old ladies across the street or whatever. It's simply about a life surrendered to Jesus. That's what it is. It's a life surrendered to Jesus. It's about living by the Spirit, and we talked about that a few weeks ago. So that when the Holy Spirit prompts you to do a good deed, you actually do it. Instead of crushing the Spirit down and go, well, I don't need to do that, I'm living by faith. Do you have a living faith or a dead faith? If a body isn't breathing, it's a pretty good sign it's dead. Or they're holding their breath and they'll be dead shortly. If a faith is not accompanied by good deeds, it's a pretty good sign it's dead. Or it's just about to be. You cannot live in Christ without doing good deeds. That kind of faith is a dead faith. It'll do you no good at all on the day of judgment. Any hope of salvation is just a false hope. And so the message for today is to repent of dead faith and to be born again to a new living faith, a life submitted to Christ, a life of faith which is demonstrated with good deeds. Does anybody have any questions? Has anybody worked out where they're going to get the sticks to make the fire to burn me as a heretic yet?
Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you that Jesus Christ did on the cross what we could not do. We could never appease you for any of the wrong that we've done. We cannot make right the wrong. We cannot pay for our sins. Your word tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Your word tells us also that the only way that we can be forgiven is through faith in Christ. But Lord, that very thing that convicts us, your Holy Spirit, even the gospel of Christ, Lord, I think about the Sermon on the Mount as he's spoke those words and he gives this great picture of what the kingdom of God is all about. And as we realise how our lives just have not lived up to that, Lord, we just, we cut to the heart and, and we know that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves, it's only you and so we pray, Lord, forgive us. But Lord, let us never forget what repentance means. That we turn from our old way of life and we begin to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would quicken our hearts, Lord, that that you would write your law on our hearts so that we would know what is right and what is wrong. But Lord, I pray also for us, Lord, that we would be a people of obedience who when your spirit convicts us, Lord, that we would become a people of righteousness. Lord, that when we have a choice of living holy, that we would choose the holiness. Lord, we pray that when we have an opportunity to show mercy, that because of faith, we would choose to be merciful. Lord, help us to not just say in our hearts, I give my life to Jesus, but Lord, for us in total reality to be submitted to Christ so that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word but we would be doers of the word so that we wouldn't have this empty, dead faith where we know all this stuff but it's just not in our actions. Lord, we praise you. Amen.